Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp, the Native American Studies channel, as well as the Archaeology channel. I'm here with Professor Kathleen Hull and Dr. John Douglas. We're going to be discussing their new edited collection, Forging Communities in Colonial Alta, California. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. So to begin with, The book is, of course, uh, Forging Communities in Colonial Alta, California. It was published earlier this year by uh, University of Arizona Press. Professor Kathleen Hall is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of California, Merced. Dr. John Douglas is director of research and standards at Statistical Research, Inc. He's also a visiting scholar in the School of Anthropology at the University of Arizona. Now, before we uh, dive into this collection, um, I want to discuss a little bit this uh, the cover art, the San Gabriel Mission cover art from the Laguna Art Museum. Why did you select this particular uh, cover art for the collection? Well, um, I think, first of all, I, we picked it because it really illustrates the colonial perspective on, on Native California. You've got in the background the mountains, which, you know, nature and so forth. In the uh, middle uh, portion of the picture, you have Mission San Gabriel, which is uh, the subject of several of the chapters in our book. And then in the foreground, you have uh, uh, a Native house and a number of Native people interacting with colonists who are Gabrieleno or Tongva, who were the Native peoples in the Los Angeles Basin at the time of contact and are still today the Indigenous people of Los Angeles. So we, we picked this partially because it was just a you know, very illustrative, pretty picture, but it also illustrated something uh, that was, went right to the heart of uh, what our book was about, the interaction between Na- Native Americans and colonists in a colonial setting. So by way of introduction, can you compare and contrast colonization across the Spanish empire prior to 1769 with Spanish colonization in Alta California? Certainly. Uh, So obviously Spanish colonization of the Americas began in 1492 with the landing of Columbus. And there was initial uh, military conquests, the influx of uh, deadly introduced diseases that decimated local native populations, the exploitation of natural resources and native labor through various uh, systems that were sanctioned uh, by the crown. Uh, And of course, there were religious missions for both um, the conversion of native people to Catholicism and the exploitation of native uh, labor. Uh, In this history, Spanish colonization of California was relatively late. The first mission uh, was established in Alta California at San Diego in 1769. So the Spanish had uh, strategies for empire, for colonialism, uh, perfected really by the time they, they got to California. They had had substantial experience 
um, dealing with um, different native groups in different areas across um, North and South America. Um, but this land was, was also relatively remote um, in the empire. It was distant from day-to-day -day control of the crown or the church. It was a challenging place to supply and support. Um, but eventually, uh, 21 missions were established uh, by the Spanish. There were associated facilities with the missions, and also there were uh, ultimately four military presidios and several uh, pueblos in Alta California. So there were similarities and differences sort of on the Spanish side. Now, from the, the native side, right, California was um, different in terms of the native people that the Spanish encountered, different groups, different languages. Most of these groups were non-agricultural people, certainly those groups with whom the Spanish interacted mostly with on the coast. Um, and they were politically and socially organized on a much more small and local scale um, than many of the groups that the Spanish had interacted with in Central and South America um, that had states or empires. So minimally, um, this usually meant um, less need for substantial armed conflict uh, for the Spanish to, to gain a foothold in California or to, uh, to maintain control in California. Um, and the dominant force of Spanish colonialism uh, was the missions, in this case, the, the Franciscan missions. Uh, but it also meant that the native people who entered the mission system um, were subject to much more profound changes in their daily life compared to many other people that entered um, Spanish mission systems elsewhere in the Americas. Um, they were forced to transition from their traditional hunting and gathering life, um, where they likely moved their villages and camps on a seasonal basis um, and lived in extended uh, kin groups. They moved into missions and became um, agriculturalists, working in the fields and working in the workshops at new crafts um, that were totally uh, foreign to them. Yeah, uh, I might just add a, a few minor points. Um, you know, when the Spanish and Portuguese really got going with colonialization. Uh, it really started in the 1200s with uh, them going into the Azores and also Cape, Cape Verde. So you really, before the Spanish showed up in California, you're talking close to 500 years of this, this expansive uh, treatment of indigenous peoples. And when you think about places like the American Southwest, which the Spanish first arrived in uh, 1580s, 1590s, Coronado went through in 1598, went all the way to Kansas. Um, they encountered very different people than those the, these mobile uh, hunter-gatherers in California. In the American Southwest, they were primarily agriculturalists. And so the Spanish were uh, able to set up their churches uh, right smack in the middle, in, case, in some cases, in the middle of... Um, Pueblos within, perm, uh, I'm sorry, within um, plazas, right smack in the middle of uh, permanent structures built by native native peoples, and so in California, it was a very different type of uh, encounter and experience for the Spanish, where instead you have very mobile groups, and so the Spanish were setting up their pueblos, their churches, and so forth, um, sometimes close by to native villages, but they really had to attract these native peoples to come to them as opposed to the Spanish going to native peoples. So it was a very different um, situation through time. 
I would also say that um, in the the, sp- the Spanish mission settings, um, whether we're talking about California or Florida or Texas or or the American Southwest, um, you know, native people were generally restricted in their movements um, within and beyond the mission walls. Um, whereas traditionally, native people had lived in family groups and. Uh, extended families and kin groups in the mission systems. Unmarried men and unmarried women were separated from their families. They were living in barracks. And all Native people were subject to uh, surveillance and control by uh, by the missionaries. So it was a, certainly a very um, different, different life than what they had been used to. Also in California, one of the um, distinguishing characteristics or unusual characteristics of the time was that there was another major colonial player, um, and in this case it was the Russians who um, had established uh, Colony Ross along the north-central coast of California. And the Spanish were um, reacting to or thinking about this Russian presence as they were also establishing or... or, um, expanding their foothold in California. They were, though the Russians were in California for a quite different reason. That was a mercantile operation focused on um, hunting for bearing sea mammals. Um, the, the, they, the Spanish were anxious um, about the, the Russian presence and, uh, and you know, built, built missions as close as they could um, to try and, you know, as a barrier to, to further um, Russian expansion in California. What precipitated the initial migration of colonists from Sonora, Mexico to Alta, California? Well, I think that there were several things going on. You know, this uh, Cortez showed up in Mexico in 1519. And by 1521 or 1522, he, uh, along with allies, were already starting to expand and conquer other parts of Central America. So by the time of uh, the overland expedition to California in 1769, you're talking about several hundred years have already gone by. And in the colonial core of Mexico, around Mexico City, um, there were very limited opportunities for indigenous people. Um, uh, uh, Barb Voss talks about the caste system in some of her work and refers to a pigmentocracy where people who are darker skinned have less opportunities than people that are lighter skinned within the Spanish caste system. And so, especially I think for people who were coming from Sonora and other places in Northern Mexico, who were part of this initial overland expedition to California, they were looking for new social and economic opportunities. They were looking to get away from the very strict caste system in central Mexico and forge new opportunities for themselves in California, get away from the Spanish crown. But at the same time, they were also representatives of the Spanish crown as part of this expanse and expanse into California. And so when you take a look at some of the research that's been done um, of those early colonists uh, in Alta California, you see within a generation people really changing their identity in California from one of being a colonist to one of being a Californian, of of creating this new identity. And in the first census, a lot of these colonists self-identify themselves as mulatos, as mestizos, as a mixed ancestry in terms of the caste system. But 20 years later, at one of the uh, subsequent censuses in California, you see this transformation of these same exact people 
then self-identifying as Spanish. And soon afterwards, many of the caste um, uh, designations uh, in the census went away, and it became this twofold interaction of you're either Native American or you're Spanish. And so I think many, many scholars have argued that what precipitated this initial migration was uh, the interest in these colonists to seek um, some sort of economic and social uh, opportunity that wasn't able to be offered to them back in the heartland of Mexico. So, before Spanish incursions, how and why did Native Californians create community at various scales of geography and imagination? Well, we know about uh, Native life in California, traditional Native life in California, through a combination of evidence, um, certainly ethnographic evidence that was um, uh, acquired by uh, anthropologists working beginning around the, the turn of the century. Um, we have ethno-historic data, uh, mission register data, um, uh, historical accounts of interactions with Native people, and there's archaeological data as well. And, and from those various sources, we get a sense of um, how a community was created um, in, in Native California. Um, on one, one way this was done was obviously through day-to-day activities of people interacting as they were hunting or gathering or preparing food or caring for children or, or, or curing one another um, with, uh, with native plants. So they were sustaining one another both within uh, and beyond the family through these sort of day-to-day actions of, of sharing and support and, uh, and working together. Another way that a uh, community was created uh, was through ties of marriage. And uh, we know from ethnographic information that it was often uh, prescribed that individuals had to marry outside their group. So exogamous marriage, uh, marrying outside of one's immediate group. Um, and this uh, we know especially uh, also from um, marriage records that were kept by Spanish missionaries. We see that um, marriages had to be renewed uh, as Native people entered the mission system because their marriages, uh, their traditional marriages were not sanctioned by the Catholic Church. So they renewed their vows, they renewed their marriage as they entered um, the mission system. And we can see that um, the husband and the wife, we can see which groups they came from. They're often groups that were located relatively close to one another, groups with whom they identified at birth. And so we see these marriage patterns across groups. So these practices of marriage formed networks, formed alliances, formed connections between families, between groups um, that might prove important in times of stress. So in times when there were shortages of food or when there were as aggression from, from other groups. Another way that uh, communities were traditionally created was through the exchange of goods and um, information. We know from archaeology, for example, that there was a robust trade in obsidian, uh, uh, volcanic glass that was used to manufacture stone tools or um, uh, uh, exchange in shell beads from the coast to the interior. And these weren't simply uh, commercial interactions as we might conceive of them today. Um, they also served to form relationships, to form networks, to form alliances, to, to forge uh, communities. And then finally, um, there were communal uh, religious practices. So, for example, um, annual mourning ceremonies, ceremonies that um, 
in which individuals of groups came together to, to mourn people who had passed away during the previous year. And these communal uh, rituals, these communal ritual practices um, involved you know, singing and dancing um, and feasting over a number of days. And these kinds of um, uh, communal rituals especially were important given the, the fluid settlement system that was typical of, of Native California where people um, moved with the seasons or there were uh, sort of fission and fusion as, as families came together and came apart um, uh, over the year. And so these communal uh, rituals, these communal religious practices uh, brought people together um, and reinforced uh, a sense of community identity and a sense of, of belonging for Native people. Follow-up question. As editors and contributors to this collection, can you concisely and precisely explain what you mean by community? Well, community has been, can be conceived or understood in, a, in various ways and, and certainly has been by archaeologists, by um, anthropologists um, more generally. Um, typically, given the types of data that we have, archaeologists have often um, thought about or sort of conceived of community as, as sort of a place or sort of a scale of residence, say a village um, that's between the household um, and the region in terms of scale. But we felt um, that this was uh, much too limiting a kind of definition to, uh, to apply um, because it didn't really acknowledge different types or different scales of community that we were really interested um, in exploring. And one of the, the major uh, uh, sort of communities that's overlooked through a spatial approach are these so-called com uh, imagined communities in which people rarely um, or maybe even never meet, but they share ideas, they share practices, they share values, um, they may even share identities um, that support the members of the community in some way, like nations or, or religions might do um, uh, for people today. Um, so, so, um, just focusing on the spatial didn't really allow us to um, to think about community in a constructive way, to think about um, how communities sort of persist over time from past to present, especially for contemporary um, Native communities. Um, so we wanted to move away from this sort of spatial kind of approach to community and think about community as a, as a social process. So following um, work of other scholars um, in this field, this isn't uh, certainly not unique to us, we uh, defined or we relied on the concept of community as a sense of belonging, um, that a community is, is just a um, is created and maintained through practices and experiences, through narratives um, and through memories. Um, there may or may not be a specific identity that um, is attached to it, um, but but people um, uh, uh, gain something uh, from this sense of belonging uh, to a community, to uh, a group of under other individuals that are held together um, through some practices and values and experiences. And so communities, through this notion of a sense of belonging, um, uh, they're, they're brought into existence through these practices, um, through these experiences, and they're not something that's natural, right? This is something that people work at um, to maintain, to create, um, to establish because it's meaningful uh, to them um, in, in some respect in their daily life. And, um, and obviously individuals can, can belong to multiple communities, you know, communities that are based on uh, economic 
exchange or communities that are based on um, other practices that, that tie people together and give them a sense of belonging. I, I might just also add within the context of this book, one of the reasons why we focused on the concept of community during the mission period was because you're able to draw from so many different types of data to look at this concept of community. Um, you know, Kathleen and I are both archaeologists, but I think that we both in some ways play um, ethno-historians on TV in terms of being able to look at some different types of data, which we aren't quite as, uh, we're, we aren't experts in it, but we use it as tools to help complement the archaeology. So, for example, during the mission period, a number of the chapters in our book are not only looking at things from an archeological perspective in terms of excavations and other sorts of things that, that we've done, but also connecting it to baptismal records, marriage records, death records, a variety of different types of um, information that was collected by missions, uh, uh, presidios, uh, pueblos within Alta California during the mission period. And together, we're able to form a much more complex and I think complete story about communities in, in Alta California during this time period than any one of those lines of evidence singularly would have offered. How and why did the Establishment of Spanish pueblos, missions, presidios, ranchos, and mercantile operations create new and dynamic relationships between colonists and native peoples throughout Alta California, as well as possibilities to conform to or depart from previous understandings of what a community could or should be. Well, I, I think, you know, when we think about the mission period in Alta California, we need to take a step back. And think about what was there prior to the Spanish. Kathleen talked earlier about what life was like for these indigenous native peoples of California. They lived in small groups. Um, they interacted with each other, but they were somewhat semi-autonomous. And then um, they were primarily hunter-gatherers. And then once uh, colonists showed up on the scene, um, Native Californians were thrust into the thick of, of major changes within a generation of colonists showing up in 1769. In short order, the environment changed. Um, the economic and social order uh, changed rapidly. And interactions between Native Americans themselves, uh, between each other, as well as between um, them and colonists, changed dramatically. Within... Uh, a very short amount of time of Spanish colonists showing up, you started to see new economic goods showing up in California. You had glass beads coming from Europe. You had chocolate copper pots coming from Mexico. You had all sorts of goods coming from Asia over on the Manila galleons. And all of these together were being made available to these Native Americans. Foreign objects, which in some cases made their lives a bit easier, but what they generally tried to do was reorient these foreign objects within the context and, and um, social understanding that they had as indigenous people. And so in some cases they were able to take these things 
and transform them in their own minds into something that they could relate to. For example, as Kathleen pointed out, for thousands and thousands of years, shell beads have been traded in California. Um, but when glass beads showed up, um, many Native Americans took those um, not as an equal um, exchange with or, or, or um, transformation from shell beads, but is something complementary. And uh, a number of scholars have pointed out that white glass trade beads were more popular among Native Americans across California, probably because they, they may re represent in terms of color something like shell beads. And so um, within a, you know, a relatively short amount of time, community, the social community of, of these relationships between Native Americans and colonists started to both uh, be introduced and, and transform relatively quickly. And I, and I think that both um, religion, as Kathleen pointed out earlier, and also uh, social ties in general were some of the keys to these new relationships in terms of, of creating community between colonists and Native Americans. I'll also add that, um, you know, in any, any sort of um, uh, colonial situation, right, your, your uh, people on, on both sides of the interaction are, are confronted with new challenges and, and new opportunities. And as John mentioned, you know, many of the, the colonists themselves, Spanish colonists, were, were involved in this migration, this, this colonization of California, because it provided, you know, economic or social opportunities uh, for them. And the same can be said of, of Native people as well, right? There may have been Native people who were um, seeking opportunities or responding to challenges um, in this context of interaction. And um, as part of this, as part of um, figuring out how to contend with this, um, with this new reality with which they were faced, um, the opportunity to, uh, to forge relationships, to forge uh, community relationships um, with individuals, either um, uh, non-Native people, or with um, with other native people with whom perhaps um, uh, native groups had not traditionally interacted may have been a really um, important uh, strategy or important need as people were trying to negotiate this uh, this period of turmoil. And in California, as as elsewhere um, in the Americas, um, one of the challenges that Native people faced was the introduction of uh, fatal non-Native diseases, and you know significant declines in population. So, in this context of um, the introduction of new goods, um, interactions with new people, um, the imposition of new practices and um, and different daily life on people, and um, significant population decline, we can imagine or we can anticipate um, that Native people in particular were uh, trying to, to figure out how to persist both as individuals and as groups um, through uh, a very uh, challenging time that also, you know, provided, um, potentially provided um, opportunities uh, for, for some individuals in, in ways that may have been important to them. Why do you favor the notion of changing continuities as encompassing the arguments and evidence for the case studies in this volume? 
it was important for us and important for uh, the contributors to this volume uh, to move away from notions that um, Native people in particular um, had to uh, somehow remain the same um, through uh, through this period of time to somehow you know still be authentic, for example, or uh, to move away from these notions of of loss that um, had re- really sort of uh, dominated a lot of the thinking about colonialism uh, for for many years among scholars, and so the notion of changing continuities, the fact that you know, people could change, right? Their practices could change, their beliefs could change. And yet in that change, uh, that there was also continuity between past and present um, was really um, important to us um, as as an idea and important to us in part because of the, uh, the potential significance or the potential impact of our work on um, contemporary Native people. So we worked from this notion of, of changing continuities that, that we would expect to see both continuity and change, changing continuities between past and present as people negotiated um, uh, the formation of new communities or the, the maintenance of communities um, that that already existed prior to colonialism. So we, drawing on the, the work of um, Lee Panitch, who's one of the scholars uh, that was involved in this volume, um, we recognize that you know, collective identity is constructed, so community is constructed, right? It's not something that's natural, um, that this construction happens through practice, through uh, the things that that people do and the things that people make, and that these practices draw on um, existing notions of, in this case, um, the foundations of community, but also um, do so in a a dynamic setting um, and in, in new ways as people, you know, recognize new ways uh, to to perhaps do things as well. In addition, why is community as a sense of belonging and gratifying experiences crucial for understanding the essays in this collection? Well, I, I think first and foremost, when we talk about a sense of belonging and gratifying experiences, that's the way that we're defining communities because time and time again in the essays in this book, those are some of the defining characteristics that people have identified as really creating community. It's these face-to-face relationships. Um, Colonists in part created situations of belonging and and these gratifying experiences with Native Americans um, through their interpersonal interactions, uh, including, and I'll just give one example here, in the chapter that Kathleen and I and, and our uh, friend and colleague, Sita Reddy, wrote, uh, baptisms. Um, we gave several uh, examples in, in the first chapter in the book, looking at interactions between colonists and Native Americans from the perspective of colonists um, interacting with these Native Americans and in some cases, baptizing Native Americans in danger of death. At the uh, village, native village of Umalawu, which is uh, the name that Malibu comes from, Umalawu was the location where Malibu is today. Um, uh, one of the colonists who ran ranches in that local area clearly had uh, 
very uh, interpersonal interaction with native villagers from Umalawu. He married someone from that village. He baptized in danger of death one of the children of the capitan or chief of the village of Umalawu. Um, in a number of the different case studies within the first chapter in the book, we look at some of these interrelationships in terms of ranchers um, interacting with the Native Americans living on the land where their ranch is. And in some cases, most likely, these Native Americans are working on the ranch as house help, as cowboys, as other sorts of field help, perhaps growing food in the fields. And um, in cases where some of these Native villagers, perhaps their children, are in danger of death, um, in the Catholic Church, uh, the only time a lay person could baptize someone was in danger of death. And in some cases, some of these colonists literally were the godparents or baptized tens and tens of Native Americans uh, over the course of their lifetime. And I think it really showed how pious these colonists were. And I don't think that for most Native Americans, the process of baptizing one of their uh, indigenous children would have meant the same thing as for the colonists performing it. But at the same time, they allowed it. And I think it was because of this interpersonal connection with these, with these colonists, with these ranchos, uh, rancheros. And so I think through those interpersonal interactions, and I think many times a number of the different chapters in, in uh, our book, at, at least in part, are looking at either um, Catholic or indigenous religions as playing a strong part in at least some of these gratifying experiences or senses of belonging. And I'll, I'll add to that. I think that this gets to the heart of, you know, why should we care about community, right? Why, why is this a topic that's worth studying? Why did we bother to, you know, bring these scholars together and, and, and think about this topic? And, and behind that is a sense that, or, or the, you know, the belief that, you know, community exists for a reason, right? These, these are not natural communities. It's not just something that happens by accident. People actually work um, to create communities, and there's a social basis for community. And so um, if, if we move away from this place-based or sort of spatial approach to community that has been typical in archaeology and, and even in, in some other disciplines, um, we have to think about, you know, what, what were these gratifying experiences? Um, what was this sense of belonging that was being created? What was this reason for community? What needs were, were being fulfilled? And I think that's why these these ideas are are important. This is we're asking the question: you know, why did Native people, and in in some cases uh, non-Native people, you know, put this effort <laughs> towards creating community? What um, what needs were being fulfilled? We want to understand, um, you know, socially why this was important, why people made this effort, and that's really you know the driving the driving force, um, the driving idea uh, behind why we were, we are, we were um, pursuing this, this kind of research. We want to understand this in the past, and we want to understand um, uh, 
the ramifications or the the echoes of those those processes and those um, uh, those efforts in the past um, in the present. If possible, can you elaborate on your introductory juxtaposition of the concepts of co-present community and reimagined community as applied to the case studies in this volume? Uh, it was important to us, as I've, as I've mentioned uh, before, to move away from just thinking about community as a residential space or as a place. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, archaeologists often equate community with a spatial scale, a cluster of houses, a cluster of sites, a cluster of villages. And that's certainly uh, one type of community and one way um, that um, some of the um, the contributions to this volume think about community, and that's co-present, right? Where people are are generally in the same place at the same time, <laughs> and that's often how you know uh, we think about community today. If we were to just to ask somebody on the street what they what they thought community meant, they would probably uh, think about it in terms of what we can call a, a co-present or a residential uh, community, but. Um, another kind of community, and one that's very important in many of the case studies in this volume and important in the world today as well, is this idea of imagined communities. And this is a concept that was introduced um, into anthropology by Benedict Anderson. And what he said, and this this is true, um, is that whether a community is grounded in a um, political basis or religious basis or some other um, sense of belonging, um, in many types of communities, people never meet face-to-face. They never are in the same place at the same time. Uh, uh, And yet, they still uh, recognize a sense of community. They still recognize a sense of belonging together. And again, we can think of this today in terms of the nation state or or perhaps belonging to uh, a particular uh, uh, religion, um, and so um, so these this, these ideas of co-present and imagined are just two different um, sort of modes um, of of time and space uh, to think about uh, different types of communities. A co-present community is where people are, for the most part, in the same place at the same time, and an imagined community is a community. Uh, where people are are not present in the same place uh, at the same time, and yet they still uh, share a sense of belonging. And this is important to us partly um, in this volume and what we were trying to do, because as we look um, at many uh, Native communities today in the Americas, um, especially those that you know are not based in a reservation or do not have um, a land uh, with which they uh, at w- in which they most or all of the individuals live, it's really important to think about this idea of imagined community and recognize how communities are sustained in ways, even when people are not um, living together day to day or interacting day to day, it's still a community. It's still a sense of belonging. It still may be um, a basis for identity um, and action. Uh, for for native people today, and I might just add on on what Kathleen said, and and just um, you know, a few years ago, some colleagues and I 
looked at the concept of natural and imagined communities in the American Southwest, looking at the Anasazi from about a thousand years ago. And we looked over the course of time at the archaeological record to try to understand something about this transformation in uh, community from household-based to something much larger, including imagined communities. And I think we were successful in doing that. But at the same time, I found that study a little bit unsatisfying because it was still kind of conceptual. We could talk about the necessities of greater community, of interaction between groups and so forth, but we couldn't actually put our finger on who these people were, what communities were interacting with what communities beyond some some general level from looking at the archaeological record. And I think that looking at the mission period again, I think really offers a different set of data where in a number of different case studies, we're actually able to look at uh, archival records, ethno-historic records to identify what villages and in some cases what people may have actually been a part of this imagined community or co-present community coming from different villages and coming together at certain times of year for certain celebrations. And we can see that through looking at mission records. And we know that in, in the case of Guaspet, for example, we can clearly see there's marriage ties between Guaspet and a number of different villages, including Pimu or Pimuabit, which is off the coast of California on Santa Catalina Island. And Guaspet had more um, marriage ties with, with Catalina Island than any other native village in the Los Angeles Basin. And so to me, that really expands our understanding of what a co-present or imagined community is, because it's not just in the, in the conceptual, but we can actually identify who some of these people were and how. Now, you just uh, touched on this, and I want to elaborate a little bit on your uh, co-authored first essay in the collection, which, as you've already noted, is a case study of the creation of community in the colonial Los Angeles basin. Can you both elucidate the strong interconnections between native Californians and colonists? You know, you, you've already uh, mentioned the, the interactions between like uh, Miguel Ortega and um, Umaliwo village, as well as the fission and fusion of native village tribalets that culminated in changing continuities of mourning rituals and feasting that in turn, shaped the ethno-history of Guaspet Village, Mission San Gabriel, and maybe even the post-mission uh, littoral borderlands in Marin County. Sure. So the morning ceremony, which is one of the things we talked about in our uh, the first chapter in the book, is, is something that goes back at least 2,500 years. Kathleen and I, in a previous study, we published an article with another colleague of ours, um, about uh, some morning ceremony activities that went on about 2,200 years ago on the bluffs overlooking what's known as the Bayona, just north of Los Angeles International Airport on the west side of Los Angeles. And, and we can see, we can understand from that experience something about the creation of community and what types of activities were done by community members to mourn their their their. Uh, their past uh, uh, family members or community members. And one of the things that Kathleen has identified at, at, at uh, down below uh, at LAN 62 
is the similar behavioral and performance patterns uh, 2,000 years later during the mission period. You can see the same type of performance in terms of ritual breaking of, of artifacts, spittling with asphaltum, which is uh, kind of a tar, a natural tar, covering with ochre, and just in general, some of the different types of activities associated with feasting and things like that that went on. And we know from uh, more recent uh, ethnographic studies, even dating to the to the 20th century, the 19-teens, the 1910s, uh, anthropologists like Ruth Benedict, who Kathleen mentioned earlier, Duncan Strong, um, they documented the mourning ceremony among Kui and Serrano uh, Native Americans uh, in the desert communities uh, west of, uh, um, uh, uh, well, near Palm Springs and places like that. Uh, during that time period. And, and so we're talking about a very long-lived tradition. And um, it's those types of activities uh, that brought together Native Americans uh, to help create community through time. Just to follow up on that, um, as John mentioned, he and I and, and other archaeologists working in, in Southern California have uh, been... Um, looking for and, and finding evidence of what we believe to be these uh, communal mourning rituals and and based on ethnographic information, including some of what you might consider the first ethnographies in California by, uh, by Spanish priests, document that people came together once a year, that they created items uh, for these rituals, that they burned or otherwise destroyed these items as, as part of these rituals. And again, there was feasting and dancing and, and singing that went along with um, the, the destruction and the, and the burial of these kinds of objects. And it's, it's fascinating to me, you know, the sites that John and I have studied that date back more than 2000 years um, in, uh, in the coastal LA area, um, we see these same kinds of practices in the archaeological record at uh, during the colonial era, and and yet um, we we do see some changes um, from the archaeological record to the th kinds of things, for example, that are described in the ethnographic record. So there's this continuity in terms of the, the continuing practice of communal mourning. Um, but the items that, that might be used or the types of methods that might be uh, employed to, to destroy or alter those items uh, change somewhat over time. And yet we see this thread through time and we can um, infer uh, that, uh, that these practices, these communal ritual practices, uh, serve the same purpose in the past and present, right? That it brought people together, that um, it was a practice of community, that it reinforced the, the sense of belonging uh, for, for Native people. And the fascinating thing um, that John especially um, has documented is that at the same time that people were continuing um, some of these practices of um intermarriage and, and mourning ritual, they were also <laughs> um, being baptized or uh, being brought into uh, Catholic religious practices through uh, the ranchos that they worked on, for example. So it's this interesting, um, uh, I don't want to say mixture, because both of these 
um, practices were were happening simultaneously, but were reflecting um, the participation of Native people um, in two different uh, communities at the same time. And and this is something that's that's important. Uh, for us to recognize, right, that it it wasn't necessarily an either or, you belong to this or you belong to that, but Native people and non-Native people, I imagine, too, were belonging to to multiple communities simultaneously, um, and and uh, and and gaining some uh, uh, some sense of belonging, fulfilling some need through the participation in both of those or, or multiple communities that they were participating in at the same time. Even, for example, in this case, where there were communities that were both, both based on religious practices. How and why do the case studies and material culture in the second section of the volume demonstrate that networks of trade and interfamilial relationships perpetuated political and ancestral communities, but also generated what you refer to as contingent communities? Well, we were really uh, uh, so happy to work with scholars that were doing such um, interesting uh, research in this in this particular area. So the the, uh, uh, the the cases that you refer to include um, one case study looking at um, the interior uh, Chumash area, so um, sort of uh, interior, the hinterlands of the Santa Barbara coast area, another uh, looking a little bit closer to the coast, uh, uh, Kayuma Chumash in that same area, and then a third uh, case study that was looking um, at Native people who uh, entered the mission system at Mission Santa Clara in uh, southern San Francisco Bay area. And um, uh, as you noted, each of these uh, studies shows various uh, networks uh, that that were established or that already existed and were maintained um, despite the the turmoil uh, of the the mission period. So, for example, um, uh, Julie Bernard and and David Robinson, their study uh, with the interior Chumash area, they saw that um, uh, uh, Native local people there were often um, interacting with Native uh, refugees from the mission system. So people who fled the mission system sought refuge um, in this area and uh, and people were exchanging goods, exchanging information, and this exchange of information and goods uh, linked people together, uh, often people who had been um, uh, not related at all um, in any way or, or, or had only been distantly related uh, in the past. And so people shared resources, they shared information, and this was especially important for people who were Native people who were seeking refuge uh, and security um, and autonomy outside the, uh, the mission system. Uh, and we see the same thing uh, in, elsewhere in the, in the Chumash area where there were uh, marriages between village chiefs uh, or the families of those chiefs that, that linked those villages together into networks. Um, and, um, and these are relationships that were created that could then be relied upon, including when um, individuals, Native individuals who had entered the mission to system um, decided to leave uh, for one reason or another. Oftentimes, um, 
being pursued uh, by missionaries or the military who were trying to bring them back into the mission system. And those individuals could rely on these um, networks that had been established through these, these intermarriages of more elite families um, within uh, uh, the traditional native landscape of the area. And similarly, um, Sarah Pilo and her colleagues uh, studying especially the, the mission registers at Mission Santa Clara, um, she recognized, they recognized, she and her colleagues recognized that um, that even as, as native people moved into the missions and um, were often interacting with uh, native people, um, of different uh, ethno-linguistic groups, right? People who spoke very different languages, people with whom they had not interacted with before. Um, Native people in the mission system were maintaining connections to their homeland areas by continuing to marry um, uh, within their ethno-linguistic group um, and maintaining the same kinds of marriage uh, connections and uh, networks that had existed prior to their entrance into the marriage, uh, into the mission system. Um, so even as the mission population became more diverse, it's clear that people were still making choices that in, in marriage uh, that uh, reflected um, traditional practices and these traditional sort of networks that they had relied on in the past. In some cases, again, she also, she and her colleagues also recognized that um, more elite families uh, that entered the mission system also tended to uh, intermarry with more elite families in the mission system. So these same sort of traditional practices uh, that created networks and relationships um, uh, persisted um, into the into the mission period, either in the missions themselves or in the hinterlands in some cases. Uh, but the interesting question, uh, thing that you noted about contingent communities, and this comes out especially um, in, in the work of uh, Julie Bernard and David Robinson, is that um, these communities often were contingent. That is, especially in these hinterland areas, there were uh, Native people who were coming and going as they were fleeing uh, Spanish uh, mission control. And, uh, and so uh, individuals in that particular context, and also perhaps in, in mission context as well, we're making sort of day-to-day -day decisions about um, who was going to be a member of their community and, and, and what that community was going to be like. And these communities often were relatively ephemeral or somewhat unstable or definitely contingent because of the fluidity uh, of, of what was happening at the time and the and the various uh, forces that people native people in particular had to had to deal with um, in this in this context. Um, I might just uh, add a small thing just to take this a little bit larger picture. Um, you know when this when the Spanish showed up and started setting up missions, Native Americans had several possible choices. They could try to stay in their home village as long as humanly possible. Uh, but many times what would happen is when ranchos were established, a rancho boundary may encompass their village and a number of other villages. And so then at that point, their lands are being partially destroyed um, by horses and sheep and cattle. And so then at that point, they could either try to work on the rancho 
They could uh, lend themselves to be recruited to the missions. In some cases, in some cases in California, arguably um, through the reduction, which was kind of a forced resettlement from villages to the mission, um, or they could flee. Um, you know, Native Americans that stayed on ranchos, padres at a number of missions, especially in Southern California, lamented that rancheros were uh, protecting the Native Americans for their own economic interests because they needed help on their ranchos. While there was these competing um, sets of uh, necessities by padres to recruit Native Americans to the missions so they could uh, become Catholic and become essentially good citizens uh, in the new Spanish empire in California. Um, and so for some people, yes, it um, was a very difficult decision to make, but fleeing to these, these hinterland areas for some people, uh, it was viewed as the only possible outcome for them. And it was, in all cases, it was very difficult. But I think that, um, you know, the day-to-day, as Kathleen put it, the day-to-day decision-making by these Native Americans and these contingent communities in the hinterlands and places like uh, the San Joaquin Valley um, were extremely difficult because you had Spanish military looking for you, you had rancheros looking for you, you had a wide variety of people um, trying to bring you back to the mission or to the rancho or somewhere else. Yeah, can you compare and contrast Colony Ross residential communities and their disparate populations as connections to hinterland peoples with the persistence of multi-scalar varieties of community in Mission Santa Clara, as well as with the shifting multi-ethnic communities of labor in the Pueblo of San Diego? So Colony Ross um, was a, a Russian um, outpost. And uh, so the, the people that were living there were uh, Russian administrators or uh, Creoles, people of, of mixed Russian and, and native descent, um, also native Alaskan hu- hunters. So um, uh, the Russians recruited um, native uh, men uh, to hunt uh, for seals and otters in California. And so those men came down to California. And then there were local um, native people, so people uh, Pomo people, uh, Miwok-speaking people, um, sometimes who married or, or were part of the community as the wives of Native Alaskan men, sometimes as as laborers as part of the um, the broader um, undertaking that that was Colony Ross. So some of the people, some of the Native people that were living uh, at, at Fort Ross or in Colony Ross, um, had traditional ties to the to the land there, um, and could uh, move uh, back and forth. Uh, between their native villages and um, and the native villages at Colony Ross, um, there was a, a fair amount of autonomy for for native people in that situation because it was a, a mercantile operation. Right, it was it was very different than the Spanish mission uh, system in California at that time. So um, it was a pluralistic community. There were people of um, both native and non-native and different native groups of California and Alaska there. Um, 
but uh, but a different sort of situation than we find uh, in the mission system or uh, in the pueblos. So uh, when we think about uh, Mission Santa Clara, which is one of the other um, case studies in, in this section of the book, um, in that case we have uh, Ohlone speaking people, so people who were sort of native of the, the Bay Area, and Yokut speaking people, so people who were uh, traditionally um, lived in the the Central Valley, the the San Joaquin Valley of California. And over time, um, these two groups uh, came to, as as, uh, Spanish missions um, expanded their recruitment, Yokut's people started to be brought into the mission system as well. So at Mission Santa Clara, we had, there were Yokut speaking people and Ohlone speaking people. and there, obviously, in the mission system, um, right, those Native people are under surveillance. Their day-to-day activities are much more constrained um, than, than you see in, in the Colony Ross situation. But there were uh, Native villages um, as part of the mission system. Uh, as part, of, There were indigenous spaces within Mission Santa Clara. And in those indigenous spaces, um, Native people tried to uh, maintain some of the practices that were important to them uh, in terms of um, maintaining uh, various communities, but they had to do so surreptitiously um, because they were under the surveillance of, uh, of the missionaries. So they practiced uh, morning ceremonies and other kinds of ceremonies um, in their native villages away from uh, the prying eyes of, um, of uh, missionaries. But their day-to-day life was very uh, controlled, and so they were not able to support one another in sort of the day-to-day practices of survival, say that was more typical of Colony Ross. And then when we look at uh, San Diego, the Pueblo of San Diego, this is later in time, um, and uh, and what we see there are um, Spanish and then Mexican settlers. Um, and American settlers as well. And most of the Native people in that community were working um, as domestic servants in the households of either uh, Mexican or American uh, people in the Pueblo of uh, San Diego. And there it was a challenge uh, to the extent that Native people wanted to uh, create or maintain a community. It was much more of a challenge in that situation. Though they were living close to one another, they were in separate households, they had their other responsibilities to the people that they were working for, um, and uh, and they were suffering uh, probably more so or in different ways um, from racism uh, because of the community that they, they lived within. So each of these communities. Um, They were people that were living together. They were living together in multi-ethnic communities, not just Native and non-Native, but often uh, Native people of of very different or distinct um, uh, traditions or cultures. And yet, um, people found ways to create community, either through day-to-day support of one another, through ritual practices that, that harkened back to ritual practices in their traditional areas, or just through um, day-to-day interaction, um, not necessarily living together in San Diego, but living within proximity to one another where they could interact and support one another. And in the case of San Diego, um, ultimately at least, um, they uh, participated in a, in, a, in a rebellion of sorts, an uprising of sorts um, to, to try and um, uh, gain a foothold or, or, or gain rights uh, within uh, the Pueblo of San Diego. 
In his distant yet proximate comparisons between this volume's case studies on Alta California and his own examples of responses, processes, and post-processes in New Mexico, ethno-historian James F. Brooks notes that we see the term dynamic used often in these studies, referring to the collection. He encourages scholars to recall that the word can mean unstable as well as forward-reaching. So in the final analysis, how does this collection help ethno-historians and archaeologists better understand, as Brooke avers, whether we are looking at familial or local responses to immediate shocks and their efforts to survive those extingencies, or the systematic and generational transmission at the cultural level to new forms of belonging? Well, let me um, start, and then John, you can uh, add uh, if that's okay. Um I think that uh, one of the important aspects of this volume is that we have uh, these multiple case studies, right? We're looking at uh, this this issue of community formation or community maintenance um, uh, across different geographies, across different times, across different groups. And so, uh, and the authors in this volume very much um, took in uh, the work of other scholars of the volume to make comparisons. And so this comparative approach, both between uh, case studies and um, be- with the more distant past, because many of the contributors to this volume, most of the contributors to this volume uh, are also archaeologists, um, we can we can uh, see um uh, distinctions. We can see these different strategies that that people used, and we can get at this issue of you know was it a local or was this um, you know a longer lasting or, or was this a, a pros- processes that we see um, in more than one area? We can look for and we can identify common threads, and we certainly did in this volume. Right, there were economic practices that brought communities together, forged communities, the religious practices, often drawing on um, uh, traditional native practices, but also sometimes incorporating um, uh, Spanish or Catholic uh, practices. And those strategies were used to, to form or maintain communities. There was marriage and kin ties. And so there are commonalities that, that we can see um, that, that suggest that some of this is, is not just, they're, they're certainly local responses, but they're part of a longer tradition uh, and and enduring practices of how native and non-native people forged communities, um, and because of the way the definition that we chose uh, to look at communities as communities of belonging, um, it also allows us to think about and, and scholars in this volume did to think about how. Um, these practices and these strategies transcend time and space. We can be look backward and see the continuity from the past. And we can also look forward and see how some of these same practices of religion or, or, or kin ties um, sustain and maintain uh, uh, Native communities in contemporary California. Um, and so that's where we see this systemic to use Brooks's words, the systemic and general generational transmission, because we see some of the same strategies from the past into the colonial era and and up to the present day. Um, yeah, I I definitely agree with Kathleen, and I, I think I might just add that you know 
um, the way James talked about dynamic as being both unstable and forward-reaching, I think is very, very true. Um, the colonial period was very unstabilizing for Native groups. Uh, you know, early on when the Spanish first started uh, their colonial encounters back in the 1200s, 1300s, many times they weren't as interested in breaking down Native cultures as they were as uh, gaining tribute or land, control of land and things like that. Um, but later on during the colonial experience, uh, once colonialization, Spanish colonialization got more refined, they were much more interested in breaking down these cultural communities and turning them into citizens, uh, citizens of the Spanish empire and more importantly, taxpaying citizens. And so when you look at California, Lee Panich, one of the authors in this uh, book, um, he published an article a few years ago in a journal called American Antiquity, the flagship journal for archaeologists. And he showed the distribution of federally recognized tribes in the state of California and the location of Spanish uh, missions during the 17 and early 1800s. And the thing that's very striking about that figure is that those two different groups are completely, uh, almost completely um, discontinuous from each other. Um, during the mission period, the Spanish were very, very good at breaking down cultural um, continuity of uh, indigenous groups who they recruited to the missions. Clearly, these Native Americans continued. Clearly, these traditions continued. But it became much more difficult for these Native groups that were involved in the Spanish system to keep that cultural continuity um, as strong and as established as those groups that were more, for example, in the periphery of the Spanish Empire at that time, in, for instance, desert communities. Uh, many of those groups uh, today are federally recognized and under federal recognition policies in the United States, groups have to show this, this continuity of tradition, uh, this continuity of group uh, over several hundred years. And so I, I do think that even though we do see a lot of uh, these changing continuities, uh, the Spanish mission uh, tradition really did have uh, deleterious effects on a lot of Native groups in California. And if I may just follow up one, one more comment, I think that Brooks's comment um, is important, right? That dynamic can mean unstable and, and certainly uh, the times through which uh, Native people in particular live through this, this colonial or continue to live through um, in terms of colonialism um, is destabilizing, uh, can make uh, groups or individuals uh, challenged and, and uh, create instability. Um, but at the same time, as, as Brooks mentions, right, that dynamism, dynamic can also be forward reaching. And I think that that's important, right? I think that we, if we think about the fact that in these very challenging circumstances, people were um, making decisions uh, that were important to them that were uh, that allowed them to um, get or maintain the social support uh, that they needed at the time, 
um, and potentially still need today, that people were adapting, they were adaptable, they were making decisions um, that reflect uh, uh, priorities that were important to them. And the fact that people made the choice, and this is what we argue, uh, and and the case study shows, people made the choice to invest in practices or to maintain practices that created or maintained communities. And that says something really important about what community meant to people then and what community means to people now. And so um, dynamic, yes, and dynamic also in... um, in, in not just dealing with instability, but also in looking forward and thinking about um, new practices or, or um, uh, within the same strategies that people had used before, um, economic, religious, uh, social, to, to maintain communities. So I actually have one more uh, question for both of you. Uh, so what is your, uh, what do you, what's next for both of you or both of you together. Um, uh, is it an, another project or a vacation or what? Uh, Professor Hall, you can go first. Uh, well, I would love to work with John again. We've worked together in the past. We've talked about working together in the future. Um, we don't have a, a specific project um, in mind, but certainly our interests um, intersect. Um, I am uh, continuing to work on one of the archaeological collections from one of the sites in Southern California that first sort of inspired this work, which is a site LAN 63 uh, that I worked on with John many years ago. And I'm expand. I, I looked at um, morning rituals at that site, and I'm expanding that research to just think more broadly about this co-present community in that case, uh, where people were living together about 2,000 years ago, and um, and how they uh, forged their identity, how they lived in a community, um, just, just to get a a better idea of these co-present communities in the past. So I'm following this thread of community, um, but but focusing a little bit more uh, specifically about co-present community and the practices of, of co-presence um, in a community at 2,000 years ago in, in the Los Angeles basin. Dr. Douglas, what's up next for you? Well, uh, like Kathleen, I would love to work with her again. I think that we complement each other uh, very well. Uh, in terms of our backgrounds and our interests. And um, I just love working with Kathleen. Um, You know, one of the things I've been working in California for about 15 years doing colonial uh, experience work. And um, one of the things that's really interested me is gaining broader perspectives from other parts of the world so that I can learn more about California. So, for example, a colleague and I last year had a book come out on the Spanish colonial experience in the American Southwest. And I'm working with uh, another colleague of mine, uh, Christine Buley from University of Hawaii. Um, We're working on a book with a number of scholars from five continents looking at Spanish and Portuguese colonial experience globally uh, from roughly 1400 uh, through uh, the present. And um, so to me, it's been really gratifying working on this work in California because I've learned so much 
And as I've kind of taken a bigger picture look, I've been able to really learn about patterns that are more um, global and then tie that back into my work in California. Thank you both for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. So the collection is Forging Communities in Colonial Alta, California, edited by uh, Kathleen Hall and John Douglas, uh, published earlier this year by University of Arizona Press. This is Ryan Tripp for the New Books Network and the Native American Studies channel, as well as the Archaeology channel. Please tune in uh, next time.